Well, beginning of a new year, I guess two things are going on. One, it's good for us to just take a one-off uh, time to reflect and to think of something perhaps a little bit uh, specific. And at the same time, there's an opportunity for us to spend this time thinking about uh, a preparation for what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Uh, and what we want to consider is, what does it really mean to live together? What does life together mean as a church? I think it's a really important point, uh, and a great point for us to sp spend a bit of time over these next few weeks. As a what are we about? What is it that we are about as a church? Uh, and maybe for you, if you're if you're visiting, if you're not regularly coming along to the church, maybe if you're not at this point somebody who said, I believe in Jesus Christ as my saviour, it is really helpful, I think, for you also to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that we can share together in this time of being able to think and reflect on what the church is all about. Because I guess that if we look down through history, the church has justifiably got a bad reputation the church let me say that again you might find that strange for the for a minister of a church to say the church has justifiably in some instances got a bad reputation it has behaved in ways which discredit the message which it claims to stand for it has behaved in a way which has not been consistent with our calling as God's people. And therefore, you might look on and think the church uh, and think all of those historical ideas, uh, and I would say if that's where we are, some of those are, are wrong. And we want to redress some of those. Uh, we want to turn some of those around and get back to what the Bible calls us to be. At the same time, isn't it fascinating that we have written into us a deep sense of wanting to belong to something? Don't we have that? If we look around, don't we have continually this creation of groups of people and belonging to different groups we find ourselves drawn to different groups. It's happening all the time. Uh, whether it's a race or a nation, whether you find yourself connected, a sense of belonging to a people group, or, or a sense of belonging to a movement. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to dare go down the line of trying to guess what uh, culturally in movements you want to belong to um, I'm not even going to try to make a stab at what your statement is by what you're wearing or, or, what, or what music you listen to but whatever it might be you are making a statement I am making a statement we all make those statements about where we think we fit in to this world or in other words where we find ourselves Wanting to belong. We all want to be belong, don't we? I find that fascinating. And you might say, well, I'm not like that. I don't want to belong to anything. I just want to be, I, I, as Paul, um, Paul uh, Simon wrote words years and years ago, I'm a rock, I'm an island. 
He said, I ain't going to get involved in all of that. I am going to be wholly independent. Why is that such a strong claim? Why is he making that claim? He's making that claim because he's found dissatisfaction in being let down in other groups. And he's saying, by, by trying to belong, I really want to belong, but I've been let down again and again by different groups, and therefore I'm not going to belong. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to be a rock, I'm going to be an island, I'm going to cut myself off, and I am going to be as dissatisfied in that lonely existence as the dissatisfaction of being let down by those various groups. Isn't that fascinating? So we either fight it and find dissatisfaction by being let down by different groups or we find dissatisfaction by creating our isolation and our loneliness. But this isn't just social observation, I don't think. In fact, I would say this is not just social observation that I'm making. This is a biblical statement of what we are as people. We are created, according to the Bible, to belong together. We are created to find satisfaction in relationships with others around. That's how God has made us, according to the pattern of the Bible. If we see it right at the very beginning, God says... Uh, we, in fact, for those of you who are here this morning, we were looking at this. God says, right, I'm, I've created a man and he's going, he's going to look around the whole of this um, creation. All of the animals are before him. Everything, all of the created order before him is there. And we have this remarkable statement in Genesis chapter 2 where there is something missing. There is something not there. Relationship for Adam. Isn't that remarkable? That in the perfection of God's creation, there is something missing. It's almost as though God is wanting to say, I want to just reinforce that you are made for relationship with other human beings. You are made for that. And therefore, I will make for you, from you, a relationship. <laughs> and there we have the first two human beings, according to the biblical picture. We have the first two human beings created, made for relationship together. This is not a social observation. Isn't it interesting that we create all of these social groups? This is a biblical pattern of how God has made us. We are made to want it. And when it lets us down, we fight against it, and it's almost as though, in the words of Shakespeare, I fear she doth protest too much. <laughs> you know, we protest against it so much when it lets us down, it's almost as though we're saying, I really do want it. Okay? So there's our starting point. We are made for relationship with each other. Now let's have a look at what we, re we have in our reading here. Because what we actually see is that God reinforces that through his word, through his people. Look at what we see in uh, verse 4 and 5. This is what the church is about. As you come to him, the living stone, 
rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, will stop it there. We'll stop it there. We'll carry on in a few minutes. Isn't that interesting? Who is the him? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. He's now being described in, a, in building terms. We've got a number of people who are into construction. It's part of our gathering this afternoon. The picture that uh, the writer is describing, the picture that Peter picks up on here, is the, the idea that God himself in Jesus is being portrayed as a stone in a building. A living stone. What does that say? What does that picture actually say to us? That Jesus who died, who rose again, who lives, continues to be built into something. He is built into something. He is a part of something. He is constructed into something. In fact, Later on, we realize he's more than just cr created into something. He is the cornerstone. He is the very, the very point on which everything else finds its bearing, finds its security and its foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of this building. The one who died and lives is now the essential element of this new building. That's interesting, isn't it? Because <clears throat> I don't see Jesus today, nor did the first readers of this letter, as, they, as it was read out in their church, some years after Jesus had died and risen again and returned to heaven, they didn't see Jesus. He wasn't there. But Peter says... He is living and is part of our construction. In fact, he is the essential foundational element of our construction. In other words, if the nature of Jesus' living person now, his eternal being now, he then goes on to say, and you can be considered just like that. I am I'm still living you can tell that because I'm speaking and waving my hands. I'm alive. There's going to come a day when I will no longer wave my hands and speak because I will die unless Jesus returns. But the way this is described is this. I am built as a living, I am now a living stone. I am built into something now which is eternal. I am built into the eternal life of Jesus. His nature, his eternal character, his eternal qualities are the, the definition of this new building. And me and you, if you believe in Jesus today, are part of that building. You are constructed now as an eternal person. I'm going to die one day. But the Bible doesn't see that as a problem to being able to state that I am an eternal being. See that? I am now a living stone built into something which is eternal. 
The second thing is this. The picture that is decided to be portrayed is that of a building. Buildings in ancient times were incredibly important. Big buildings. Buildings of power. Buildings of statement. Buildings of presence. If you've been around any of the ancient sites around the world, I'm sure you will have seen the residue of those buildings. Buildings are important places in ancient times. They, they, if we particularly look at the importance of buildings, where did, where did the money go, really, towards buildings? If you go to Rome today, what buildings from Rome have survived? The buildings from Rome that have survived, from ancient Rome, are the buildings of spiritual, eternal significance in the minds of the Romans and buildings of kingship and authority and power. They're the buildings that have lasted. All of the other buildings were not built to last. If you're going to put money into a building, you'll put it into a building that made a declaration and a statement of eternal, spiritual, uh, divine significance. And Paul says, now, the building that God is creating is no longer a temple. It's no longer a physical building. But it is a new building. It's no longer a building of bricks and mortar. It's no longer a building which can be seen only in one place at one point in time. It is a new building. It is a building which is constructed, which is eternal, which is spiritual, and which is seen throughout the world. It is this giant declaration of God's presence. Because if we think about those temple buildings, that's precisely what they were statements of. They were statements of the presence of God. And God says, now there's a new temple that's being built. And the temple isn't built with bricks. I guess that's one of the things, one of the challenges as we looked at back over time. The amount of money that has been invested in physical buildings, in churches. The amount of money that has been tied up in, in physical places of worship. In one sense I understand what was trying to be done. But in another sense, what's the real building? What is the real t timeless building that declares the presence of God? It's the building which is made of living stones. Now let's just stop and think about the significance of that. Every building... Every little part of a building is significant, isn't it? Now, as you, as you build a wall, as you build a wall for, for the side of a building, one single brick does not look important. But the combination of all of those bricks together becomes significant, doesn't it? One brick is of no significance. But all of those bricks constructed together built together, knit together, cemented together, built onto that foundation, that becomes significant. That becomes a real building. 
At one point it's a pile of bricks, but when it's transformed and when it is knit together, it becomes something which is identifiable as a building. What this is saying here is, what does it really mean to belong? It means to be knit into the building which is founded on Jesus. Now if you think about just think about the way buildings work. You, you know, you start with your bricks and you put your next two bricks on top and then you ne- lay the next one, crosses over those two and it kind of, you know, it builds up one after the other and you get these lovely intricate shapes of all of those bricks together. It means this. I'm, I'm just a brick in the wall, to quote a song. <laughs> I'm just a brick in the wall, but you know what? I'm connected to all of the bricks around me. I need those bricks around me to be there. If those bricks are are not around me, I fall out the wall. You know, if erosion takes place and the cement falls apart uh, and some of those bricks start to fall out and all of the bricks that hold me together, they fall out, I'm I'm gone. I'm out of the wall. But equally, all of the bricks need me to be there as well. All of the bricks are knit together into this, this, this whole wall. And none of the wall would survive if the cornerstone disappeared. But the building that is created by the eternal Jesus cornerstone, the eternal Jesus cornerstone, the cornerstone that cannot be destroyed, cannot be broken, because he has risen and he lives, that cornerstone is so secure that all of the rest of the wall that is built on that foundational brick, that foundational cornerstone, is secure as well. But it says this, that we as people, we belong and we need each other. Because we are the representation of God in this world. We are the people of God. This is what our verse carries on to say. Because it says this, you are being built into a spiritual house. You are being built into a spiritual house. What do you think about when you hear the word spiritual house? Holy ornate building? You know, a building which you walk into and it's got some sort of quiet reverence? Or well-positioned candles? Or something that just has that serene calmness it's what we think about spiritual house isn't it actually a spiritual house in the economy of heaven is a group of people who are knit together across the whole of the world who are spiritual in their dimension and in their being we are spiritual in the sense that we are made alive with the cornerstone who lives we live Because of that cornerstone. And therefore we have become spiritual beings knit together. Part of a spiritual house. The way it goes on to say. (coughs) We are a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. If you wanted to get to God, 
in the Old Testament before Jesus, you had to go to the priest. There was no other way. You had to go to the priest and find a way through the priest. He became your advocate, your representative before God. He took your sacrifice on your behalf. He made sacrifice for you and he allowed you to be acceptable. He stood in your place and he stood before God. He stood before God. The priest stood before God for your sake. He was the one that was uh, ritually cleansed. He was the one that went through the whole process of being acceptable before God on your behalf. Look at the change that takes place because of Jesus. Every single one of us as believers in Jesus stand acceptable before God as a royal priesthood. As a priesthood who are acceptable before God. Isn't that an amazing, uh, holy, holy people before God? You do not, you must not, you cannot see me or any other Christian leader as the means or the, 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 the root or the focus through which you come to God. I stand shoulder to shoulder with you. I do not stand above you. No church leader stands above you. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the same privilege, the same access, the same opportunity to stand before God as the holiest of priests in the Old Testament. The priests who went through the, the deepest ritual cleansing to stand before God. You and I stand there. For one reason. Because we've got a better priest. Who's doing the job all the time. Jesus. In the presence of God. You know the structure in the Old Testament. There was the high priest. And then also all of the other priests. Who were working on behalf of the people. And the high priest was significant. And Jesus says do you know what. I'll take that role before my Father on your behalf all the time, forever. And that means that you can stand in the most holy place and be acceptable. What does that mean? It means that if we believe in Jesus, we are clean. Quite simply that. Why couldn't I come to, the, come to the most holy place in the Old Testament? Why, could, why did a priest have to do it? Because I wasn't clean enough. The priest had to do it on my behalf. And now we say, every single one of us are clean before God. I don't know what 2011 brought for you. In your thoughts, in your attitudes, maybe in your actions or your words. But reflecting back, don't we look back and say there is a whole bucket full of stuff in 2011 that makes me unclean. 
there is a mass of stuff that means that if I was being truly honest, I do not deserve to stand before a God who is pure. And this verse says, do you know what? You're clean. Do not allow the idea that you are unclean before God, even though you know that you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, do not allow the idea that you are unclean before God to stop you from boldly coming before him. Because this verse says you are cleansed, not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus that cleanses you and gives you the freedom and liberty no matter what has gone on to keep coming back, to keep accepting and valuing and holding on to the truth of one sacrifice in Jesus who was both priest and sacrifice and say I'm accepted by him. I can keep coming back. That, that, those kind of truths are really, they're a bit like the cement 